Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshallton, and today we are going to talk to historian and political scientist Donald Wright about his newly released book on the history of Canada. This book is part of Oxford University Press's Very Short Introduction series, that's VSI, that began in 1995, covering an incredibly diverse array of topics in history and other disciplines. The series now counts 650 separate volumes. But, and I want to emphasize this, Professor Wright has written the only volume dedicated to Canada in this series. Donald Wright is a professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of New Brunswick. An historian by training and inclination, he previously held an appointment with the History Department and Centre of Canadian Studies at Brock University, and in 2011-12 was a visiting fellow at Cambridge University. You may remember that I actually interviewed Don before, and this was on his superb biography of historian Donald Creighton. We did this two years ago. So Don, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for inviting me, Greg. say that you are both a productive and a versatile historian. How did you go from a highly detailed biography of a very famous Canadian historian to a sweeping history of Canada in the span of just a few years? Well, the short answer is not easily. Uh, Donald Creighton very nearly killed me as a scholar, uh, the work and the hours and the years that went into him. Uh, but towards the end of that project, I was approached by Oxford University Press asking if I'd be interested in submitting a proposal to this series, a series I knew, a series I very much liked. And I said, sure, this could be a great um, bridging project uh, to my next big book. Um, I had no idea, though, how difficult it would be to write this very short introduction. Well, a few months ago, I interviewed Dmitry Anastakis on his historical survey of Canada entitled Reinventing Canada After 1945. Um, I think you know this very well because you mentioned his book uh, in your preface, but he took a very thematic approach to Canadian history as well. So now I want to understand exactly what you did. Basically, you divided your history into six chunks. The first was beginnings. The second was dispossessions. The third was nationalisms. The fourth was rights. The fifth was borders. And the sixth was Norse. First, what I'm really curious about is why are all these one-word chapter names put in the plural? The answer really is Ramsey Cook. Um, as many people know, I'm working on a book about Ramsey. And uh, in a, my many conversations with him and my reading of his scholarship, I came to the conclusion that 
really one of his central insights into Canadian history is that it was plural, not singular. And of course, that was always Donald Creighton's mistake. He saw Canadian history as singular and that he was its sole author and the, the keeper of the story, as it were, the keeper of the national story. But Ramsey Cook from Manitoba, from the outside coming in, um, said, no, no, no. In fact, there are multiple histories to Canada. And again, that was his great strength. It was his great insight. And so when I was writing this book, I wanted to nod, uh, give a give a, a nod to Ramsey. And so I pluralized each chapter title because, there, of course, there's more than one beginning. Uh, there are beginnings. There's more than one nationalism. There are nationalisms. There's more than one border. There are borders. So... How did you come to choose, though, these exact themes? What, in a sense, drove you to that as you were writing the book? Well, it took some time uh, because I wanted to find themes that would capture the totality of Canadian history, um, the totality of the experience of Canadian history uh, from the beginning to the present. Uh, and these words were both specific, beginnings, nationalism, uh, dispossession, but they were also open-ended, meaning I could talk about a lot. So, for example, nationalisms allowed me to talk about uh, First Nations, it allowed me to talk about English Canada, it allowed me to talk about uh, Quebec, and of course it also allowed me to talk about Newfoundland. Um, and so, as I say, these words were open-ended, uh, capacious, and allowed me to pack a lot into what is a very limited uh, amount of space, a very limiting format that you're you're given as an author in the VSI series. Right. Now, as a prolific author, uh, you can only write efficiently if you know who your audience is. Who is your audience for this book? Oh, that's also a good question because, of course, you, you're told to write for that elusive uh, general reader, the educated general reader who's not an expert in the field but who might like to learn more about in this case, Canada, who might be at the Pearson Airport in Toronto and is coming for a vacation or coming for a business trip uh, or coming for a meeting and say, oh, I'll pick up a book, a short book at the at the Pearson bookstore, uh, and they might pick up this one. So it's, again, someone who knows a little bit about Canada, not a lot about Canada, and wants to learn more about Canada. So it's for the non-expert, that elusive uh general educated reader. Is that what attracted you to the Oxford University Press's format for its very short introduction series? Yeah, because the real challenge as an academic to write for the non-expert, uh, to write for um, those who are new to a topic. We are so trained to write in uh, 10,000 word uh, articles with lots of footnotes and lots of archival citations, but we're not trained to communicate that uh, to, to experts outside our narrow fields of expertise. Um, and so, yeah, I really wanted that challenge as a writer, and it was very, very difficult, actually. It was not an easy assignment. You introduce the book in a very surprising way with a story that begins in Syria rather than Canada. Can you tell us the story and really how it relates to Canadian history? A few years ago, my daughter and I uh, adopted a family, adopted a refugee family from Syria, and it has been a wonderful journey uh, as I help them navigate their new home, the school system, the labor market, etc. Um, and it's been fun to watch their discovery of Canada. Um, and I also realized that not only are they discovering Canada and, and, and rebuilding their lives here, 
but they are also contributing Canada to Canada and, and, and remaking Canada in the process, like many different immigrant groups have done uh, across the, the 19th and 20th century. So I thought that would be a neat opening hook um, as the Alberdan family literally flies into Pearson, then flies into Fredericton and gets off the plane and begins to take down roots. And as they discover Canada, so too does the reader through the book discover Canada. I think that's one of the neatest features of the book is the way in which you integrate the present and the recent past into the earlier history of Canada. So I want to take you to a part of the book that I was struck by. While taking us through the Seven Years' War and the British defeat of France in North America, uh, which was in some ways as much an indigenous war as a European war, you describe Robert Houle's famous 1992 painting, Kanata, which is really a reinvention of Benjamin West's painting of the death of General Wolfe, which we as Canadians uh, have all seen at one point or another. So describe this to us and your thinking behind using that relatively contemporary painting and reflecting on the uh, early uh, uh, history of Canada. Well, first, I just love that painting. I think uh, Robert Hules is a genius. He took one of the most famous paintings in Western art history, The Death of Wolf, as you say, and then completely transformed its meaning. It was no longer heroic death and the cause of empire. Um, he drained the color out of the painting and then on one side put a red band, on the other side put a blue band, the red band symbolizing the British Empire, the blue band symbolizing uh, the French Empire. And the only color in the painting itself is of the Mohawk warrior who is on bended knee contemplating the death of Wolf. Um, the only color in the, in the painting now is red and blue in the Mohawk warrior's blanket. Um, and of course, it's a comment on forced assimilation. Um, but in, in making this piece of art, uh, Houle has, of course, decentered French uh, Canada, decentered uh, English Canada, and in the process, centered Indigenous Canada. Um, I thought it was absolutely a, a fascinating piece of work. And it also tells me, and, and I really like the fact that you pick up on the past and the present, because, of course, the past isn't the past. It's still unfolding. Um, and we're still debating these issues. We're still living with the consequences of, of, of historical experience, historical events, historical personalities. Uh, and this was just one way I could draw on um, that reality. Now, the book is less than 120 pages. It's about 35,000 words. Uh, yet you take the time to present individual stories, in a sense, witnesses to yesterday, to illustrate certain points. People like Augie Morasti and Sandra Lovelace. Uh, I particularly noticed this on your chapter on dispossessions. Given the very compressed format, why did you take the time to do this? Oh, boy. Well, look, I'm a biographer, and I like people. I'm interested in people. I'm interested in what makes people tick. Um, and I thought for the reader out there, they'd like to meet Canadians um, and, and walk a mile in their historical shoes for a few, uh, for a few minutes. Um, and I think people make history. Uh, I'm not saying that, of course, great themes don't make history, great events don't make history. Of course they do. But at the end of the day, 
I thought the reader might like to meet people like Augie Morasti, whose story is so compelling. In that book that was published a few years ago by the University of Regina Press, The Education of Augie Morasti, was so wonderful and so heartbreaking at the same time um, that I wanted to include uh, include him. It was an incredible book, I agree. It really was. I, I think it should be, talk about a Canada Reads, that should be a Canada Reads. Yeah, I was on the editorial board of the University of Regina Press when the the book was first offered up, and uh, I was really struck by it. Well, let's move on to the chapter uh, on nationalisms. Uh, there have been many nationalisms in Canada's history, uh, but what I want to know after your sort of time of reflecting on this, can we really describe Canada as a multinational country today? Well, yes, I think we can. But of course, it depends on how you define nation. And that's always been the challenge. Um, is the nation synonymous with the state? Or is it separate from the state? Uh, so I like to think that uh, it is separate from the state. Um, and that you can have multi... Uh, well, you can have more than one nation within a federal state. Uh, I think Quebec very clearly is a nation, but it's not a nation like we think of the United Nations. It's still a province, but it has a national identity. Um, Newfoundland is a province, but it, of course, was once a self-governing dominion with a strong national identity. And still has its unique language. <laughs> it has its own unique language. Um, likewise, uh, the First Nations, um, they're not a nation like uh, Ottawa and in Canada, uh, but they do have national identities. Uh, and then, of course, English Canada has its own national identity. And the trick is to manage these, and I think Canada does a pretty good job, all things considered, of managing these competing national identities um, within a federal system. So what do you think the difference is between multiculturalism and multinationalism then? Um, well, multiculturalism refers to a couple of things. First, it's just a demographic fact. Canada is one of the world's most multicultural uh, countries in, uh, as I say, one of the world's most multicultural countries. Toronto is maybe the world's most multicultural city. So it's just a demographic fact, a demographic reality. But it's also a series of policies that came, as you know, out of uh, Pierre Trudeau's government and was... Uh, entrenched in the Constitution and then enacted by Brian Mulroney. Um, so, as I say, multicultural demographic reality, it's a set of policies. It's also an ideal. We aspire to it. Um, but not every culture is going to be a nation. I mean, we don't refer to the Portuguese in Canada or the Italians in Canada, or for that matter, closer to the present, the Syrians in Canada as nations. Um, not every culture will get that uh, to describe itself as, as a nation like that. Right. So it's a host of factors uh, from the historical to the constitutional recognition inherent in that. I think Canada is the only country uh, to have a statement of multiculturalism in its constitution. I think that's right, and it makes it very unique. Indeed. And it speaks to our commitment to pluralism, and that's one of the themes I really wanted to emphasize in this book. And I don't want to get you know, sentimental and, and, and uh, teary-eyed. Uh, but I think Canada's commitment to pluralism is quite profound and quite deep. Um, 
And again, I, I'm taking that really in many ways from Ramsey Cook. He recognized that growing up in the prairies that was so diverse, so linguistically and religiously and ethnically diverse. And he really appreciated that. Um, and I think, uh, it's a, it's, it's just a, it's true, uh, that this commitment to pluralism exists. And again, I don't want to get sentimental about it. I don't want to get teary eyed about it. Uh, but I think that's a good thing. Well, you can sure see it in terms of the narratives surrounding immigration and uh, refugees. Compare the discussion that goes on in Canada to what goes on in most Western European countries, most other countries in the Americas. It's just a profound difference. Now, you, in fact, devote an entire chapter to the his history and development of rights in Canada with a particular focus on the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. This is more attention than I've seen in other historical overviews of Canada, and I'd like you to explain why you decided to give it that kind of attention. It was an opportunity, a chance to talk about social movements. So in talking about some of the great charter decisions, for example, the Morgenthaler decision, it allowed me to talk about the women's movement. Uh, in talking about uh, some of the decisions on, on, on gay and lesbian rights, it allowed me to talk about uh, uh, the gay and lesbian rights movement beginning in the 1960s. So again, when you write a book like this, as anybody who's attempted to write a survey of Canadian history or a textbook of Canadian history, you need your frames. Otherwise, you just become so unwieldy. And I thought rights was a, a good way of framing a lot of the things I wanted to talk about without spilling over into this uh, endless uh, story of, of, of uh, women and gays and lesbians and uh, labor. It, as I say, made it neat and tidy and compact. Well, as a card-holding member of both the political science and history uh, fraternities, I think it's fair to ask you this question then. Uh, do you think that the uh, judicial interpretation of rights in Canada has had a great impact on the shaping of Canadian society since 1982 as political decisions uh, through our legislatures have made? Yeah, boy, that is a tough question to answer. And I don't know if I have a very good answer. Um, look, the Supreme Court has made some incredibly important decisions controversial decisions I concede on abortion, on same-sex marriage, um, on, on religious rights. Uh, absolutely, they're controversial and they're difficult at times and people do question why do we have nine unelected judges telling us what, we, what our public policy should be. Um, but that doesn't mean that legislatures, that doesn't mean that uh, parliament and the different provincial legislatures are, are, are uh, ineffectual or, or weakened. I think it's a dialogue between uh, the courts and parliament. Uh, and I think it's a healthy dialogue. So in your chapter on borders, you focus almost exclusively on U.S.-Canada relations. Uh, this was long described as a relationship between an elephant and a mouse. And so what I would like to know is whether this metaphor is still the right one in the age of Trump. <laughs> oh boy, is anything uh, the right metaphor in the age of Trump? He really does defy words, doesn't he? It defies language. Um, maybe a raging elephant and a mouse might be a better metaphor to update it uh, to the Trump era. Um, 
But, uh, you know, to, to Justin Trudeau's credit, uh, to the federal government's credit, uh, they played the hand that was dealt them. Uh, and I think they played it as well as they could. And you hear you're talking about the negotiations over the uh, U.S.-Mexico-Canada Free Trade Agreement. That's correct, yes. I was really glad to see the title Norse in plural rather than just North in your final chapter. Um, I spent a lot of time in northern Canada, and the thing that has always struck me is that there are so many distinct Norse in Canada. So tell us, uh, where does your North or Norse start and end in this country? Boy, that if I had the answer to that question, I'd be, uh, you know... The next Margaret Atwood. Um, Arthur Lower always said that the North began where the pavement ended. Uh, in other words, it's very, very difficult to locate. Margaret Atwood would say that the North is a state of mind. Uh, geographers refer to different climactic zones um, and, and talk about North of 60 and South of 60 and Arctic and subarctic. Um, and that's one of the, the, the points about the advantage of pluralizing the chapters is it allowed me to talk about those different Norths that exist out there, but also exist in here in the Canadian and, and Quebec imaginations. Right. And I think the imagination's critical here because uh, we so often think of ourselves as a Northern country, whether we truly live in the North or not. And for those of us that live in places like Toronto, which is, quite south of the north, there's still a northern perception. But let's return to the realpolitik of the north, as well as public policy writ large. One of our greatest challenges, as we all know, is climate change. And what I'd like to know, based upon what you've written, is how does the history of Canada's various norths figure into the way that we're currently dealing with or not dealing with climate change? Look, climate change is incredibly serious. I teach an entire course. I teach two courses in the history and politics of climate change. Um, I don't want to get bogged down in the complicated physics of Arctic amplification or polar amplification. You are the right person to ask, given that. <laughs> yes, right. Um, that the because of Arctic amplification or polar amplification, uh, the North is warming at about twice the rate of uh, the rest of the world. And of course, this means melting ice. It means melting permafrost. It means positive feedback loops that even if we do mitigate our carbon, uh, that warming process is locked in as the, as the ice melts and as the permafrost uh, melts. So I think this is going to be a real challenge for Canada going forward. It's going to be a real challenge uh, for the Inuit uh, and the Dene in the far north, the Indigenous peoples in the far north, um, for their hunting and their uh, flooding um, uh, in their communities. Um, it's going to be just a staggering uh, challenge for uh, wildlife in the north, uh, you know, the iconic uh, symbol on our on our currency, the polar bear. Um, the consequences and the and, and the implications of of climate change in the far north are staggering, and I want to touch on that in this book. So, 
you'll note that in the I talk about the melting ice sheets and the migrations of Paleo Indians across the, the Bering Strait, um, and then of course now we're back into another ice melt, uh, but a very different ice melt and a enormously consequential ice melt. I should also add one interesting thing from that chapter, and I don't know if you caught it or not. And that, of course, was the uh, the Burger Commission on on the Mackenzie Valley Pipeline. And I was reading it a few uh, months ago, well, about a year ago, I was reading it for another reason. And I was stunned to see, and this was in the 1970s, I was stunned to see a reference to climate change. And Justice Berger asking the experts about what an oil spill in the Mackenzie Valley, uh, what it would mean for the ice in the Beaufort Sea and the ice's albedo and what that would mean for climate change and the expert said well that's a very good question of course it would darken the ice which would increase the rate of melt but we don't think there could ever be enough of a, of a melt or sorry of a, of a spill to damage the the thickness of the ice but the point is that they were already thinking about climate change in the 1970s and we've had this 40 to 50 odd year period of inaction on on the question of climate change even though they understood the physics of it very, very early. Yes, and it's striking, you know, the when you read the Berger Report, the lack of progress that we've made in so many of the areas that he identified in that report in terms of the North, and uh, it, uh, it really is and was prescient in so many ways. Don, I want to thank you so much uh, for taking the time to join us today. Well, Greg, thanks for having me. It's been a delight. And, and I must tell you, I'm a huge fan of your podcast. Um, I listen to it constantly. Uh, I connect with old friends because of it. Uh, I read new books because of it. So I think you're doing a great service for Canadian historians. Well, thank you so much, Don. My guest today was Professor Donald Wright. He is the author of Canada, A Very Short Introduction, published by Oxford University Press this year in 2020. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you can become a subscribing member and help support the preservation and publication of documentary history in Canada. If you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who work hard to bring to life original documents in Canadian history. We want to thank the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, the University of British Columbia Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Greg Marshallden. This interview was recorded on September 30th, 2020, in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt.